Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. This is your host, Spencer Martin. This week, we are going to uh, just touch on Milano San Remo, which happened last weekend, uh, dive into what happened on the Poggio a, l- a little bit, uh, and talk about Volta, Volta a Catalunya, which is a seven-day stage race going on right now in Spain, and touch on the upcoming classics, one-day classics this weekend with uh, E3 on Friday and Ghent Webelgen on Sunday. But first, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to beyondthepeloton.substack.com and sign up for the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. If you're listening to this podcast and enjoying it, the free newsletter is a no-brainer. It's once a week, and there's a paid edition of the newsletter that comes out every day during Grand Tours and twice weekly during non-Grand Tours weeks. There's also uh, discounts available with that with select brands. Right now we have you can get 20% off off Cure of Switzerland clothing, stage of cycling products, as well as a free 12 months of Strava premium if you sign up uh, before you run out of those coupons. So get over there to be on the peloton.substack.com to sign up right now. All right, well, Milano Sanremo was on Saturday. Uh, big Italian races are always on Saturday, I guess because Sunday is the Lord's Day. I don't know. I've never quite figured that out. Jesper Stoyven of Trek Segafredo beat the big, big favorites like Wood Van Aert and Matthew Vanderpool. Super interesting race. It's it's kind of a funny race. It's seven, it was actually fast. I think it was the shortest one I could ever find at six hours and 30, 38 minutes. It's, I mean, this thing can be almost seven and a half hours at times. So uh, they really they really clicked through those 300Ks. I think they averaged like 27 miles an hour, which is, uh, that's crazy. There, really nothing happens in the race until this Trapeza with like 20 eight kilometers to go it's second to last climb and then the poggio is the final climb with uh it starts about 9k to go 10k to go julian alaphilippe for the last two years i mean the last three years at this point has attacked with exactly 6.5 kilometers to go so i mean we all know it's going to happen it always sticks together until the poggio you ride up the poggio as fast as you can it's a really tricky really tricky descent and then it's like 3K, slightly downhill, flat through San Remo, and then a sprint finish. Uh, it's formulaic, could be called boring. I mean, certainly if you watch the race start to finish, it's incredibly boring. I wouldn't recommend doing that, but uh, it's a beauty to it. It's a beautiful race. Physically, it's gorgeous. Uh, it was great to watch. It kind of felt like I was on the Mediterranean coast. Uh, nice, immersive experience. And then it's just, it's you can kind of pop it on with 30K to go. You don't miss anything. It's not like... Flanders or Roubaix, you, you put on with 100k to go, and sometimes the race is blown up already. You have no idea what happened. You have to piece it together like a forensic case. But San Remo, you just you wake up. You know, it's it's a little later than normal because it's it's on Italian time. Va uh, bene lifestyle. You throw it on with 30k to go, and you're good to go. You don't miss anything. So it's kind of it's you could argue it's the least made for TV event in cycling because it's seven hours with 30 watchable minutes, but it's it's almost it is almost made for TV where you can just consistently throw it on for the last thirty minutes and they're always going to be great. You can, and you can't just do a thirty minute race at this level because it wouldn't be interesting because everyone would be too fresh. But the six and a half hours prior to you watching it uh, saps people's legs, tires people out. So you just get a lot of really in these hills. I mean, these climbs wouldn't be difficult for these pro cyclists normally, but they they just kind of drain people's legs so much that. You know, the Poggio, it's like three, three and a half percent average, and it really can explode the race. And it's gotten so fast in recent years that uh, gone are the days of the big bunch sprint, 
finishes on on the Via Roma, the finishing straight. The, the Monday newsletter I sent out really broke down. This this race came down to uh, the last 10K and positioning in it because the Poggio is so fast that you want to be as close to the front as possible. You don't want to be on the front, but if you're in second position, that's great. Third position, that's great. Fourth, fifth, sixth, that's almost too far back. So it's it's a really, really tricky climb. I think a lot of guys underestimate it because it's not that steep. It's not even particularly thin. You know, it's a nice wide road by European standards, but the pace is so high that if you're even 10 riders back, you can be too far because when Alaphilippe launches his attack with 6.5K to go, you've got to be right on him because if you're not right on him, as you know, as we'll talk about, Vanderpool was like 10, 15 riders back. You have to do a big move just to break even. But on the Trapresa, just to jump back a little bit, Trapresa with like 28K to go, Jumbo Visma, the team of Wout Van Aert, the defending champion, wrote, deliberately rode, the, rode it pretty hard. Uh, not, not nuclear fast, but hard. And they kind of, they used up uh, any riders, any teammates that Wout had left were being used up on this climb. I think the idea was to just keep the race together as long as possible because Woot was that confident in his sprint finish that he didn't mind if it went to the line. So they so they went all out to keep riders like Vanderpool from attacking far out. That was probably, I'm assuming that was a big concern because he's one of the only ones crazy enough to, to do it. The last rider to attack from that far out and make it to the line was 1996. So it's not common at all. It's very hard to do, but if Vanderpool was on a good day, you could see it happening. So they sell out to do that. Uh, that means Woot's on his own pretty much after the Chabresa. Ineos comes to the front, jam like jamming the pace from in between this like really important 10K between the Chabresa and the Poggio with 10K to go. So Ineos is setting pace on that. It's high enough that it keeps any attacks from going. Um, this makes sense if they have a sprinter. They do not have a sprinter. So I, I was just utterly confused about what they're doing because they're basically riding the race for Woot and Caleb Ewan, who is still in that front group. They get to the, uh, right before the Poggio, this is like the critical, critical kilometer because there's a washing machine effect going on where riders from the front are getting pushed to the back, riders in the back are getting pushed to the front. It's really, really, really hard to position at, in a moment like this. Vanderpool has a great position with 9.8k to go. He's right at the front. But even by 9.4k to go, he's then pushed too far back. And I think this is why, like, Milan San Remo, it's a race of nuance where he probably actually, I'm looking at a a screenshot right now that's in the newsletter. He's probably 20, 30 riders back. To him, that probably doesn't feel too far back. He's just thinking, oh, I'm okay. Like, this is fine. But the race is really over before before he knows it. You know, he's like, he's dead in the water, but he doesn't realize it. Ineos is coming up the side. They're going to you know, jam up the Poggio. So this is like a critical, critical moment. Alaphilippe and Woot Van Aert are right at the front. They know exactly what's going to happen. Ineos hits the Poggio with 9, 9K to go. They're riding a really... Philippe Ogana's in the front, riding a great, great fast pace. Uh, the only problem is Caleb Ewan's tucked in. Like I see one, two, three. Caleb Ewan's the fourth rider. There's three Ineos riders in front of him. Like, this is what Caleb Ewan's team should be doing. If Lotto had a stronger team and they were president at the front, they would be riding a hard but consistent pace for Ewan so no one can attack him. And, you know, because the thing about Ewan, not a great climber at all, but if the pace is just hard enough that 
you know, he can kind of limp his way over the top in the front group, but not as herky. If once it gets herky jerky, he doesn't have the the threshold power and the explosiveness really in that sustained climbing power to be able to hang on. So his only chance is just for a consistent pace. And that's exactly what Ineos is doing here. And I honestly don't think they understood what was going on. Uh, you know, because if they're thinking strategically about this, well, they have Tom Pidcock. You know, Kiefkowski's won this race before, I think back in 2017. But he's not the same rider as he was back then. I mean, and certainly he can't win a bunch sprint against Woot Van Aert, Caleb Ewan, Matthew Vanderpoel. It's just not going to happen. Even Peter Sagan doesn't stand a chance against those guys. So the strategy makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, Pitcock needed just a lot of attacking. He needs as much chaos as possible. He's a really, really small guy, like 58 kilograms. And he needs just constant, constant, you know, just like attacks off the front, a really inconsistent pace, the exact opposite of what his team is doing right here. And because they had so many, they have like four or five riders right here, way more than anyone else. They just should have been sending attacks one by one to, I mean, A, get away and win the race. I mean, they're, they're, all those guys were strong, strong enough to be there at the bottom of the Poggio, which not many other riders on other teams were, and to just make it as chaotic and uncontrolled for Pitcock as possible. Because for him to win the race, he needed to get over the climb with, I mean, without, I mean, it's actually hard. He, maybe he could have sprinted against Alaphilippe and won, but he needed to get over there without Woot or Matthew Vanderpool because he can't win in a sprint against either of those guys. So either they have to drop them or he has to attack right off the, the bottom of the Poggio, which he kind of tried to do. We'll get into that in a second. But Ghana really holds the pace on this until really, you know, 7K to go, 7.2K to go. Uh, and we all know it's, what's coming. And when Ghana pulls off, Ewan is in second position. Uh, after Ghana pulls off, really good position. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows he can't climb as fast as everyone else, so he has to build himself a buffer by being as far towards the front as possible. So when the attacks come, he can lose time, and as he fa- he can fall back through the group, you know, travel, you know, s- slower than everyone else. His his real time, his real speed is slower, but being further up gives him a buffer to builds him a buffer so he doesn't get dropped. So a 6.5k to go, Alaphilippe attacks. This is exactly where he attacked in 2020 and 2019. Woot Van Aert knows exactly what's coming because he's right on his wheel and expects this, but Matthew Vanderpool is uh, too far back. There's a screenshot that shows exactly this moment in the newsletter. Vanderpool's like 10 riders back, which he probably thinks he's in the right position. That That's kind of the the concerning thing here is it's there, there's a nuance to the race that he's not grasping and he thinks he's fine. The big problem is when Vanderpool and Alaphilippe get a gap, you know, they get a gap immediately. You see in the next screenshot that Vanderpool has to come around so many guys. It's like the the top two, the front two riders are traveling almost like twice as fast as everybody else. And there's immediately a gap. Everyone else is like stuck in quicksand, going backwards. Vanderpool has to go all the way across the road, go around them and then pass them and bridge back up. And what what this does, it's, there's two things that happen here. A, Vanderpool is spending a ton of energy just breaking even, just getting back up with Alaphilippe and Moot Van Aert. He's spending a ton of energy just, just catching up to those guys to break even. And he can't attack because what would the energy that would normally be his attack is he's just breaking even, just getting, just making up for the bad positioning. And like that's, a fa- that's fatal right there. And the other thing it does is, when he there's a, I have another screenshot that shows him bridging up to the front too, and Ewan is is essentially he's last wheel. So 
this group of four or five riders can just sit on Vanderpool as he pulls them up to the front too, you and being one of those riders. And those guys wouldn't have made it up. Alaphilippe would have been gone if it wasn't for Vanderpool making this bridge and pulling everyone else up. So that that really affects the race right there. Vanderpool's mistake and bad positioning, you know, makes the group over the top like 10 riders when it could have been two easily. It really could have just been a repeat of last year. Um, and it allows Ewan to stay on because he can stay there just enough that all, Ewan staying there also de-incentivize. You can see Woot. There's a point where Vanderpool catches up to him. Van Aert sees that uh, Vanderpool's there, but also that Ewan is, he's still dropped a little bit. And Woot is pushing really hard. Van Aert's really driving this pace because he's more than happy to, you know, to sacrifice some energy here to get rid of the fa- what he knows is the fastest rider in a flat line. And, you know, what, what we saw in the finish is Woot was the fastest rider besides Ewan in a sprint. So, he, and he knows that right here, that if he can drop him, he can win the race. He can beat Vanderpool and Alaphilippe in the sprint. He, he's probably pretty confident of that. Um, but the inclusion of Ewan in that front group means that once, once he goes over the top of them, and they go over the top, I think it's Van Aert first, Ewan second, Vanderpool third, Alaphilippe fourth. And once that happens, there, there's no impetus to keep the pace going on the descent. A lot of times you'll see attacks on the descent here. Uh, those guys see, well, Caleb Ewan's here. We just got to come up with a new plan. We're going to have to just just let this group swell and hope someone does something. Um, that's exactly what happened. Uh, the, the group swelled on the on descent to like almost like 16, 17 riders, it looked like. Jasper Stoyven was in that group uh, and the eventual winner. And Pickard takes the front with like a kilometer left of the descent and tries to attack. He said after the race, though, that he didn't know where he was going, which uh, was pretty shocking for a team that is like known for its preparation, that they would have a rider who didn't know the descent and then was trying to attack on the descent, since that was probably his most likely way to get away. But he, uh, it's kind of a fatal mistake on his part because he's at the front right at the bottom and what happens is the riders in the back, like Stoyven, probably had caught on just recently, and they sit up at the front. And once they do that, Stoyven is going so much faster; it's like a slingshot effect. So he's flying down this descent. They kind of sit up for a second at the front. Stoyven is like, by the time he gets to the front and they see him, he's traveling like twice as fast. And you can see Alaphilippe move over and try to block him. Uh, but Stoyven's so big; I mean, he's like probably 20 kilos heavier than Alaphilippe. I would uh, pay for the audio of what was said when he came by him, but he really had no chance to physically block him. He just gets pushed out of the way. Stoyan flies by, and Pitcox tries to respond, but you, you really can't do that. I mean, once someone's passing you at that much speed and you've been on the front, you can't stay with them. And that's really where, that's, that was the winning move right there. It's exactly like Fabian Cancellara in 2008, who I believe... Uh, he wasn't on the Trek. Trek Sergio didn't exist, but I think he was on the CSC team then. But the team manager at Trek managed Fabian later in his career. And I guarantee you that he talked to Stoyven about this exact move from 2008 before the race. It's a great move also because none of the, the favorites have teammates. The only team with more than one rider was Ineos and they had Pitcock and Kiyakoski. Kievkoski was just hanging on for dear life, though, so they're not going to organize a chase for riders like Caleb Ewan, Woot Van Aert, and Matthew Vanderpool. So there's really and no, so there's this big group, but no one has an incentive to chase because they know if they chase, they'll lose, and the faster rider will win. So 
this is an absolutely perfect move because of that. It's just like this confluence of events that makes Stoyven's attack uh, likely to stick. So once he does the attack, uh, Soren Krau Anderson attacks with 1.5k to go, so about 1.5k after Stoyven's move. And this is key because he bridges up the Stoyven and pulls him. Uh, probably be, my guess is he just wanted second place. He figured, well, I can't get second. And this is a calculation probably more pros should do. A lot of guys sit in and just wait to get beat by faster spinners. But he knows, like, well, I can't get second in this bunch sprint. So this is like, I'm optimizing, you know, I'm doing a quick analysis of the situation. And I'm optimizing my, uh, the highest possible upside. And I'm going to act on that. And that's exactly what he did. And he pulls Stoyven quite a bit. Um, Stoyven sits on his wheel. And it's this thrilling finish where Stoyven eventually starts sprinting with like 150k to go, or sorry, 150 meters to go. Holds off Caleb Ewan, who launches a sprint a little bit early because he's desperate, knows it's the only chance of catching him. And Vander, Vanderpool launches on the other side of the road. Uh, him and Ewan kind of go at the same time, but Ewan goes to one side of the road and Vanderpool goes to the other, which is kind of an odd move. And Woot follows Vanderpool and he passes him, but he doesn't get second because Ewan's on the other side of the road going a little bit faster. They probably should have followed Caleb Ewan, though. Peter Sagan gets fourth, moving pretty fast at the end. So, pretty surprising. I, I thought that was a really surprising result. I didn't expect that. Uh, I said, I actually, I need to correct myself. I said Ineos was the only team with two riders. It was Ineos plus Bora. Shackman was in there with Bora. And Shackman was kind of doing his own thing. This actually was bad teamwork on Ineos or Bora's part. Shaq, if Shackman works, he probably can pull that move back. And then Sagan sprinting for first instead of for second. Uh, it's debatable, though, if he wins that. I doubt he wins it. So that's probably why Shackman was kind of doing his own thing. Alaphilippe took a pull. When Alaphilippe realized that he wasn't going to win the sprint, he took a pull at the, like, with like 300k to go. It almost, it almost catches the breakaway riders. I thought that was kind of weird. I didn't quite understand that. And then Quinn, a quick step works all day uh, for Alaphilippe to kind, of, to kind of help everyone else at the end. I thought that was odd. I didn't totally understand that. Um, and another, just another note is I think Pitcock, Pick, Pickock should be looking at this thinking, oh, I could have been Jasper, Jasper Stoyven. Jasper Stoyven, not quite sure how he says his name. Uh, that, that was the way he could have won. You know, if he's not going to get away clean on the Poggio, uh, then he needed to do that attack, that exact attack, because people probably wouldn't have chased him. Uh, riders like Pitcock, Stoyven, you know, kind of the not A-grade favorites are going to get a lot more leeway than everybody else. So... I, th I thought Ineos kind of had a really bizarre strategy. It kind of speaks to, even though they want to do this attacking style and there's this, they're this professed new team that they have a long ways to go when it comes to figuring out how to actually attack. So we'll talk, well, let's touch on Volta, Volta a Catalunya, tour of Catalan, the Catalan that's going on this week. Seven day st stage race starts on Monday. I'm terrible with days. That means it ends on Sunday. Uh, first stage was just kind of like a hilly, too hard for the sprinters, not hard enough for the climbers. Breakaway run won by, I believe this guy, Andreas Korn, Krohn, who I'd never heard of before. Danish rider, young Danish rider. We're definitely experiencing this, this Danish invasion. 
they just keep seem to keep coming. There's more and more great Danish riders, just like the Norwegian riders we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, notable because he beats Luis Leon Sanchez, who this rate this stage would have been perfect for pretty much every year up to this year. I was actually really surprised he got kind of outfoxed by a twenty, a young a young twenty something. He is thirty seven. This is probably just physical decline. Uh, mentally, mentally still sharp though. I mean, to make that move, he, he did, he rode this race perfectly. He knew exactly when to attack, how to get in that break, just gets beat by probably a stronger, younger rider. Uh, but Chris Froome gets dropped and loses like eight minutes. It's the stage isn't that hard. So right there, panic button should be pressed for Israel startup nation. Maybe start thinking about a plan B for the tour. Cause that doesn't look like it's going to happen. Uh, stage two, 18 kilometer time trial. Some interesting results here. So Rowan Dennis wins for Ineos. A uh, little slump he had at Perinice appears to be over. Uh, very good, very good win for him over Remy Cavagna. Five second win. And then 20, Joao Almeida in third. Right? He, he finishes 28 seconds behind Dennis. And Joao's great time trial. So that's a really good result for Rowan Dennis. Uh, Brandon McNulty, the American, in fourth. Same time as Joao. So that means they're tied same time as leaders of the overall. So pretty exciting there for Brandon McNulty. Uh, I mean, those, I think those two are the big winners in the day. They're, they're good enough climbers to compete for the overall GC here. The rest of the stages are mountain stage tomorrow, mountain stage Thursday, and then kind of tough, tough medium mountain stages all the way till Sunday. So I mean, it'd be hard for them, especially McNulty being such an inexperienced rider. It'd be hard for them to win it, but it's definitely possible. I also am curious about Rowan Dennis. I have like a crackpot theory that he could be Ineos's super secret, like secret weapon for the Tour de France hiding in plain sight because uh, he can time trial and apparently climb in- incredibly fast. So this will be like a little test case to see if he really has what it takes. I think it's going to be weird for him and his Ineos team, though, because we have Richie Port and Adam Yates both did great time trials, finished, you know, 34, 35 seconds back. So they're right up there in GC2. Garrett Thomas. It's supposed to be a great time trial. Finishes fourth on his own team, and he's forty-seven seconds back. Uh, things are not looking good. I would, I would start worrying if I was Ineos, where they've said that Garrett Thomas, Richard Carapaz, and Teo Gigginhardt are their leaders for the tour. It looks like those guys. I mean, Carapaz minute twenty back. So that's that's not a great sign, especially going into a Tour de France with so much time trialing. Really interesting subplot here, though. So Adam Yates, we were talking about this in the uh, Beyond the Peloton subscribers-only chat today. Adam Yates actually been pretty consistent this year. He got second behind Tadej Pogacar at the UAE Tour, which makes sense since Tadej Pogacar is the best rider in the world, and his brother Simon has... You would. I, I think they both struggle with consistency, but it might just be because his twin Simon struggles with consistency so much, and Adam has been a more consistent, just less good, uh, less fast. So you, he's had less chances to wipe out, perhaps. He's traditionally not been as good as his brother, not, not anywhere near as good as his brother. Simon is identical twin. Sorry, not just brother. But now that they're on different teams, we kind of get this, it's this funny little experiment where we get to see like, the, well, is, what, what difference does being on Ineos make because a lot of the riders that are get good on Ineos go to other teams and have a severe, severe performance drop off. Uh, and what we've seen so far, so Simon finished, Adam finishes seventh on the day at 35 seconds. The Yates twins are not good time trialists. So that's a great result. Simon finishes 35 seconds behind his brother in 27th place. Uh, th- that's crazy because they, 
neither have been great time trialists, but I would say Simon's been significantly the better time trialist throughout th their career. Simon's the only one of the two that's won a Grand Tour, uh, put in great time trial, trial performances when he won that, or I guess decent. At the Giro earlier, the he lost the Giro in fantastic fashion earlier that year. Did some great time trials in that, though. He's the only one to win a major one-week stage race, too. So, I mean, Simon's by far the better of the two, historically. Adam had a great tour. I mean, let's say great. He got, he got ninth at the 2020 Tour de France. Pretty good result. But definitely not the star that his brother has been. And I believe the story is Simon was recruited by British Cycling, which is run by the St. Dave Brailsford, who also runs Ineos now. Um, Adam was not extended the invitation. So the team he's on now essentially didn't think he was good enough as a, as a younger racer. And now they picked him over his brother. Uh, it, really interesting to see that divergence between the Yates twins. Uh, and Ineos kind of has this tricky little scenario where they have, if we look at the GC, so Richie Port is one second ahead of Adam Yates in the GC. Richie Port came to this team as a perfect, like excited about not leading a team anymore, but it's kind of like a, like a, like a old, like a lore of like a warrior who retires and, and just wants to rest on his homestead by himself and not be bothered. And he keeps, keeps getting pulled back into the action where it looks like Richie Port might be the team's best GC rider and might have to lead the team at the tour. I mean, I actually wouldn't even tell Richie Port that he's my leader if I was in the US. Just say, yeah, you're working for people. And then, oh, over time, oh, sorry, you're our, you got third at the Tour de France again, like last year. Because he is great when the pressure's off. I mean, he's... Uh, I mean, that was a great time trial performance by him. We'll see how he does. Some, some of these mountains, I mean, we have uh, tomorrow's summit finishes 11 kilometers at 7.5% average. So that, that's tough. That's a really tough stage. But so they have uh, Yates and Carapaz, sorry, they have Yates and Port right up there at 6th and 7th in GC, but they're here, I think, to be riding for Garrett Thomas and Richard Carapaz. And that's, that should be the aim. So they're, they have way too many leaders. Like they have just a team of like quote unquote stars who are going to have to work for each other in some respect. And to me, but the problem is this is going to be their problem all year. This was their problem at Milan San Remo team of incredibly strong riders, but no grade a winner. I mean, they don't have the top tier talent that can compete with the likes of, you know, Woot Van Aert, Matthew Vanderpool, Julian Alaphilippe in the one days or one week stage races that we've seen with Woot Van Aert or compete with like Tadej Pogacar and Primoz Roglic and Grand Tours. So they're stuck with this like really strong, consistent team across the board, but no stars. But the problem is a lot of these guys think they're stars. I mean, Adam Yates came over to the team to be a leader. You know, Richie Port got third at last year's Tour de France. Garrett Thomas is a former Tour winner and they're publicly supporting him. He's, he's the team's leader. Richard Carabaz, you know, that guy's a, a really good, really good rider. Probably should have won the Volta last year, um, won the Giro the year before that. But he's right now in the GC, one, two, three, four, fifth, fifth on Team GC, almost a minute back in a, in a race where it'd be really hard to make up a minute. So I, I don't totally see the strategy there. They have like way too many decent, decent riders. I mean, I say decent, I mean, decent in the sense of like competing with the best in the world. But no, no real leaders. So that's going to be interesting to watch how they compete. And I'll, I'll drop in a little. I'm going to watch uh, the first summit finish, I guess, tomorrow. But this today, when you're listening to it, and I'll drop in a little 
blurb about what happened on the summit finish today. So we'll drop that in right here. So stage three of uh, Volta Cat- Catalunya just wrapped up the uh, first summit finish, and Adam Yates just absolutely crushed everybody. Uh, we are seeing a new, a new and improved Adam Yates, uh, an Adam Yates we've never seen before. Uh, it makes sense. I, I mean, I guess it makes sense because we saw him at the UA Tour, and he was fantastic. He only lost, he only lost that race because Tadej Pogacar is just the best rider on the planet at the moment. So. Uh, yeah, we should have learned, I guess, learned a lesson from UAE Tour where Adam Yates is now the, uh, the he's taken the, t- the mantle, the supremacy of the Yates twins. He is the better Yates twin. Uh, super, super interesting. There's going to be a newsletter about this transformation uh, coming out probably later today or early tomorrow. I mean, I, w- I would assume the, the transfer to Ineos has something to do with that. He is a different rider. The only thing physically I've noticed is he looks much skinnier. And these guys are already skinny. The Yates twins are like 130 pounds. He looks he looks like he could be like eight pounds lighter than he was or five pounds lighter. He looks incredibly skinny. But uh, it was a super exciting summit finish. A lot of attacks. No, no team really controlled the pace, which was fantastic. It's, it makes it much better for viewing. But Adam... There was a little move with Sepp Kuss and Alejandro Valverde off the front, and Sepp, this actually should show us, Sepp gets a lot of credit for being like the best climber in the world, but he always gets called back. I have like a pet theory that Sepp, he just looks like, he never looks like he's under pressure, but he he actually is, and today proved it, where um, you know it was like a pure climber's finish. Adam Yates is as close to a pure climber as you can get except apparently he can time trial. We'll talk about that in a second. And he just straight up dropped Sepp Kuss. I mean, really, really dropped him. Um, Sepp was going backwards fast. The only person who could really challenge him was Esteban Chavez, who, talk about a comeback. This guy uh, has had a rough couple of years, but he was really chasing him down, finishes 13 seconds behind Adam Yates. Valverde finishes 19 seconds back. Pretty great ride for Valverde. I mean, this is the best I've seen Valverde since 2019. Garrett Thomas kind of leads whatever was left of the Peloton home 31 seconds later. And this sets up a super, super interesting situation with Ineos where it's clear Adam Yates is their best rider. <laughs> um, I, there's a little, there was like a uh, conversation going on in the sub- subscribers only chat on Discord where someone was saying like, am I crazy or is Rowan Dennis Ineos' best shot to win the Tour de France? And like, I, I totally agree with this. I ascribe to this theory where Adam or Rowan Dennis is if you look at the Tour de France 58 kilometers of time trials they'd be crazy not to send Rowan Dennis as a leader they're not going to do it um they possibly his just mindset he does I don't think he has the mindset of someone that can lead a race for three weeks it takes a very specific person he's probably proven he's shown us throughout his career he doesn't have the the mental ability to do that so that's probably the right choice you know knowing who he is but on paper it makes a lot of sense second best chance Adam Yates. I mean, this guy looks fantastic. You'd say his big weakness is time trialing, but he got seventh in a flat time trial yesterday. So apparently he can time trial now and climb. <laughs> Not quite sure what's going on there, but like we got a new and improved Adam Yates here. Uh, Richard Carabaz, who is su- supposed to be leading the team, him and Garrett Thomas aren't just straight up aren't as good. Carabaz got dropped today. He This is his first race of the year. He looks pretty, pretty substandard. And there's this theory, I mean, Chris Froome got dropped pretty far out too. There's this theory circulating in the media that, oh, we're so far from the tour. These guys have time to build fitness. That's not really how it works. I went back and looked, uh, and I got a listener question about this last week where 
you know, is Tadej Pogacar peaking too early? And, you know, I, th- I thought so too. I thought, yeah, he is peaking a little bit early. How can he hold his form this long? But I went back and looked at the most dominant Tour de France winners in the past, I don't know, 15 years. It's like, if you think Contador, 2009, Bradley Wiggins, 2012, Chris Froome, 2013. Those guys were flying from February to July. And you actually very rarely see this miraculous turnaround. I think Vincenzo Nibali perhaps was not great in 2014 early in the year. But that tour was weird. I mean, Chris Froome crashed out. There wasn't really anyone else other than Chris Froome who could challenge Nibali. Um, yeah, so, so you do see riders hold form. I mean, you see these, these really, really fit tour riders, tour winners, can hold form from February to July. And you actually very rarely see riders turn around. I, I, don't, I think it's maybe flaw in the human mind where you think like, well, I've, I've been out of shape and then have been in shape. So I think these guys can do it. But that's not really the margins are so low here where, you know, certainly like there's times where I've been creeping on a group ride in February and then I'm crushing people by July. But we're not talking about like a local, this isn't like a local race series. The, the margins are so thin here where you even being a few percent off, it's like sending a rocket into outer space. If you're a few percent off on your calculation at launch, you're going to miss, miss your target by, by thousands of miles potentially. So just being a little bit off, even this early, I think extrap- it almost extrapolates out. And like Tade Pogachar is going to be really, really good. And in these new guys, they don't, their form doesn't seem to modulate that much during the year where it used to be these, this older generation, they would really go up and down, but that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Like Tade Pogachar just kind of seems to hold form all the time. Uh, it's unclear to me if this is a sign of more or less doping. My gut would be that the riders who were like these big dips and like big valleys and big crests, that's actually due to doping because you're taking blood out, you're, you're targeting one or two events that you're going to use lots of either performance enhancing drugs at or your own blood at. So probably a better sign that riders are more consistent throughout the year. But that's just my, that's just a guess. Uh, but to take it back to Enios, Adam Yates, clearly, the, clearly their best GC rider right now. Um, it's interesting because if you look back at his, his career, he's never won a significant race. Uh, I mean, he won Classic Ascent, Sebastian. I meant stage race. He's won one significant race in his career. Classic Ascent, Sebastian in 2015. Never won a significant week-long stage race. His biggest stage race win is UAE Tour last year. Uh, he got second this year to Teddy Pogacar. Looked great in both of those races, but that's that's not a, that's not a decorated Palmares. Especially he's making something like three million euros a year. So kind of he's not as accomplished as you would think. I think his brother his brother was flying in 2018 and had that spectacular wipeout at the Giro, won the Vuelta, and we tend I I don't know I think we tend to think Adam Yates is better than he is, or at least more accomplished than he is because. We associate him with his twin brother. I thought Adam Yates wiped out at Terreno Adriatico, but that was actually his brother Simon. So I'm actually I'm suffering from Yates Yates amnesia as well, where I can't tell them apart. Um, Adams actually had a pretty consistent year this year uh, throughout his career. I mean, both Yates twins have suffered with some inconsistency. I actually thought Adam looked slightly consistent at the 2020 Tour this year. Um, he just wasn't quite good enough to hang up there. But that ninth was a pretty good ride. I, 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 I mean, obviously, he looked nowhere near, just didn't have the, the power 
just didn't have the engine to hang with the lead guys like Ruglic and Pogachar. So it's crazy to think that he could go back and lead Ineos this year. Just 12 months later, I guess less than 12 months, 10 months later, this transformation, it's pretty crazy. Um, I'm interested to see how it plays out. And I think it leaves Ineos, it kind of solves a problem for them where I didn't think they had a real grade A GC leader that could both uh, hang with Pogachar and Roglic in the time trials and hang with them in the mountains. Uh, Adam doesn't totally solve that, but it kind of gives him an interesting option because you're, you're competing with Pogachar, who can time trial with Rowan Dennis, I get Roglic too, and then Pogachar's the best climber in the world. Pogachar's a better climber than Adam Yates and as good of time trials as Rowan Dennis. So that's a tough nut to crack. I don't really know how you solve that riddle. But Adam helps him. The emergence of Adam certainly helps, but it's going to throw some big wrenches. They're going to have to make some tough decisions inside that team. You know, who's going to sit Garrett Thomas down and say, hey, I know we said you were the leader for the tour, but you're actually not anymore. I mean, that's going to be a tough conversation to have. He's a big star. Um, He's a big personality in that team. It helps that Adam Yates is British because that team is very British-centric. They really care about having British champions on the team. So that's, that's helping. Adam, um, Richard Carapaz could unfortunately be the odd man out here. I think I don't like that because I really like Richard Carapaz as a racer and he seems like a pleasant person. So uh, bummed, bummed for him. But as things are going, it does not look, his leadership chances do not look good. I would not assume that he's going to be leading that team at the Tour de France in 2021. Um, but yeah, those are, I, I mean, if Adam, unless Adam has a Simon-like meltdown, He's going to win this, this race. Uh, probably be the biggest win of his career. Volta a Catalonia. Yeah, I think, I mean, he got second here in 2019. Uh, I, yeah, I would say this would be the biggest victory of his career, uh, at least stage race. I, I would even say this is bigger than Classica San Sebastian. Uh, so, yeah, really exciting stuff. It, I, I love that the Yates have to ride against each other now. And it's just shocking to see Adam so much better than Simon after Simon was a superior Yates twin for so many years. All right, well, uh, so for the rest of the week, uh, Catalonia, it finishes on Sunday on a, and we have another mountain stage tomorrow. I believe it's a summit finish. And then it's just kind of these difficult. So then Friday is a medium mountain stage. Saturday is a hilly stage. uh, Sunday is like a medium mountain circuit short circuit 83 mile circuit in barcelona must be on the outskirts of barcelona hitting some mountains Uh, it's going to be all hard so it's i guess it's not wrapped up by any stretch of the imagination but adam Yates is certainly in the driver's seat here uh will be interesting to watch and then we have e3 harabuckle on friday a semi-classic uh i would yeah certainly classify that as a semi-classic Goes over a lot of the same roads as Tour of Flanders. I mean, all these Flemish races, there's not that many roads in Flanders, and they're just a small region. They have to go over the same roads. Uh, it's shorter. It's 200K long. It used to kind of be the, the best predictor for Flanders. And then Gent Wevelgen was like the Sprinters Classic. It was in between, I believe it was in between Flanders and Roubaix, but they've moved it earlier and lengthened it. It's now like 230 kilometers. Added a few climbs, really, really cool climbs. Uh, like the Kapamu is a really, really cool, famous climb that used to be fin- that used to finish the Tour of Flanders. It's now the last climb at Gantwavelgem. This is on Sunday. It's a little far from the finish, though. It's like 35k from the finish. So 
it's not it's no longer post 2008 it's no longer like a sprinter's race but it, it can end in a bunch sprint just because of that long stretch between the final climb and the finish uh both of these races it's not a great one for one like usually it's not like the winner of e3 and the winner of get wimbledon is a guaranteed to win tour of flanders but it's a good if you're up there in these races it's a good predictor that you're going to be competing for the win at tour of flanders so a lot we can learn from these races. Uh, it's weird E3s on a weekday. I don't like how they do that. I find it disorienting and it's hard to watch for normal people with jobs. Gent again on Sunday is going to be, that's going to be a really, that was a great race last year. I think it's going to be a great race again this year. Uh, just all, all the, all the favorites are going to be there. I think we're going to get another Vanderpool, uh, Van Art showdown. Watch for Czech Sigurdsson to spoil that party like they did at Milan San Remo, like they did last year at Gent Wolvigan. So Keep an eye on both Mats Pedersen and Jesper Stuyven, as well as riders like Soren Kral Andersen, and even Peter Sagan. Uh, no, no, Peter Sagan won't be there. He's going to be at Catalonia. Weird that he's at Catalonia. Um, kind of must be chasing some form that he needs and some better weather. I guess as a lifestyle choice, Catalonia, yeah, I would rather ride there than in, in Flanders right now. Uh, sad news that Paris-Roubaix... N- not happening again for the second year in a row because of, I guess, a COVID, an extreme COVID spike in France. Uh, it's crazy that this is the only race that gets canceled every year. Uh, like in 100 years, are we just going to be like, millions gather for the annual cancellation of Paris-Roubaix. No one knows when this tradition started, but it's now a stalwart on the calendar. Uh, I'm hoping they can, they can roll it over and maybe run it in October or something. I hope they can save it. It's one of the best races of the year. It's, it's really crazy that it's not going to happen two years in a row. But that is it for this week. So we'll just keep an eye on the racing. Check out the newsletter. Uh, if you subscribe, you'll, you'll be even more plugged in. So check that out at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. And thank you for listening. Bye.